If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 19 through 21. And I decided, just to let you know, what I'm doing this month and next month is too many things. Um, I'm coming here, I'm going back to Idaho, I'm coming here, I'm going to be finishing up some doctoral studies at Westminster in Escondido, and uh, I'm trying to get my house closed up and moved in Idaho and trying to get the one here um, closed up and moved into and, you know, resurrected from its uh, state of disrepair. And so I'm going to be going back and forth. And so I thought what I would do is um, do a, a small series, maybe six or, or eight uh, sermons on the Word of God. And so what we're going to do is, following on the heels of Psalm 19 that I preached when uh, I was candidating, we are going to look at key texts in the Word of God. That... Hello. Hello. I don't know what happened. There it is. Oh, there it is. There. 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 I must not have had it clipped on good. That's never happened before. We're going to look at key texts in the Word of God that teach us about the Scriptures, why we have Bibles, the importance of the Scriptures, and just some characteristics about God's Word. Because this is Calvary Bible Church, and there's a reason why it's Calvary Bible Church. And that is because uh, this is a church that is founded on the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And you have had faithful pastors in the past, and I hope in the present and future, who will teach God's Word to you. I was sitting in my desk one day, um, studying away, and I got a little call from the secretary, and she said, uh, there's a gentleman on the phone who wishes to speak to you. And uh, I said, all right. And so I answered the phone, and this uh, man uh, introduced himself and said, well, I'm from out of town, and I'm in town, and I'm calling up churches in town, and uh, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind me... um, kind of, you know, having a morning service on Sunday and uh, just kind of replace the preaching portion of the um, service so I can give my testimony. And I thought, hmm, this was kind of a little red flag. (laughs) I thought, this is interesting. Then he said, you know, he'd be willing to do this if we took a love offering for him. And I thought, hmm, second red flag. I said, I don't think we'd be interested. And he said, well, let me just tell you about my testimony. He says, I died and went to heaven and saw some incredible things and then came back to life. God raised me from the dead. And this was the third red flag. So I said to him, no, you didn't. And he said, what? I said, no, you didn't die and go to heaven and come back to life. And he said, well, how do you know? I mean, how do you know? You you can't tell me what I've experienced. This happened to me. He says, and you can't tell me what happened to me. You don't know what I've experienced. And I said, have you ever read Job 7.10? And there was this pause. I said... When Job is speaking to a man, when he dies, he says, he will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. I said, have you ever read Hebrews 9.27? Another pause. It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There was another long pause. He said, well, 
Other people have been raised from the dead, and they died more than once. I said, you mean like the people that Elijah or Jesus or the apostles raised from the dead? He said, yeah. I said, what prophet raised you from the dead? And he said, well, you know, other churches, switching the subject, other churches are having me speak, and he named three prominent churches in town. And I thought, this is interesting. This is really interesting. That was the final red flag. I said, I'm not interested. Why? Because we don't set aside what God commands us to do for what we have an option to do in the worship service. Also, what bothered me is money and greed are often the earmarks of false teachers. Third, the man's testimony contradicted the word of God. And fourth, peer pressure or popularity is never a reason to do or not do something. And so he said no. And what really amazed me is I called the churches that he said were going to have him speak, and sure enough they did, and they let this man pump doctrinal sewage into the hearts of their people. And this is a plague today. It's a common phenomenon all over the world. The Word of God is being replaced and supplanted by experience. And it's a shame. We had churches in Boise who got into this laughing revival where people were flopping around on the floor and laughing hysterically and jumping up and down. And this one church just real close to the church where I used to preach at, there was this one service where people were crawling around on the stage and making noises like animals. This one lady was, you know, bagging like a sheep. And this other man was roaring like a lion and was crawling up to her and licking her on the face. In another instance, the pastor of that church, probably didn't study for his sermon, just laid down on the floor and took a nap during the service while everybody else just went crazy. Now afterwards, all these people left the service feeling blessed. I'm telling you, that is blasphemous. That kind of thing is blasphemous. And we need to seriously consider the role and responsibility of the Word of God in the church and how that relates to this experience. I mean, just what kind of weight should we place on our experiences? Is there ever a time when we should take our experiences and set aside the Word of God because something that has happened to us? And this is what we are going to discuss in the text today. Now, before we get into the passage, let me just give you a little bit of background. Peter, in this second epistle of his, is exposing false teachers. I mean, from stem to stern, the whole book is about exposing false teachers. He wants people to be warned that false teachers are rising up in the church. Peter's about ready to die. Um, he says in uh, verse 14 that the laying aside of his uh, earthly uh, dwelling uh, is imminent, that is, his body. He knows he's going to die. He sees all these false teachers creeping in the church. Remember what Paul said in Acts 20, that you know false teachers would come in from 
uh, without, and then even from among yourself, uh, people will arise, you know, teaching perverse doctrines and drawing away disciples after themselves. And Peter is on the, you know, his his last leg, um, so to speak, in his earthly run, and he's he's concerned. So he writes this this little three-chapter book to get the people of Asia Minor, which is kind of a cyclical letter, to understand how to spot false teachers, how to discern false teachers. He exposes what they do, he exposes their motives, and he exposes how to protect ourselves from them. And in this first chapter, he is explaining the role of the Word of God in all of that. So this is what's happening. It's about 67 or 68 A.D. Peter here is working hard in this little book to protect all the churches which God has planted throughout Asia Minor. Now, as we examine our text today, we're going to be looking at three different truths, actually just one, but in this week and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at three important things. The first thing is you need to know that your Bible is more sure. Secondly, from this text, you find out that you need to know what you should do with your Bible because it is more sure. And third and finally, we're going to learn from this text what makes your Bible more sure. So today we are going to cover this first point, these first eight verses, and then uh, next week, um, you know, if God gives me utterance, we'll be able to finish up. Now, Let's look at the text. Verse 19. Notice what he says. Follow along here. Hey, let me just ask you this. How many people here use the old King James Version? Okay. How many people here use the new King James Version? Okay, I got a few of those. How many people here use the new International Version? Oh, we'll pray for you. Um, how many people <laughs> use the old New American Standard Version? How many people use the new New American Standard Version? Okay, well, this is like the church at home, <laughs> a little bit of everything. I, I like to know that, so when I'm teaching, I can you know, deal with the differences. Okay, let's look at the text. Verse 19, Peter writes, and I'm reading from the New New American Standard Version. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. People, this is probably one of the single greatest texts in the New Testament on the inspiration and authority of the Scriptures. Now look at the beginning of verse 19. Know that your Bible is more sure. Notice what the text says. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. And if you have an older NAS version or if you have the NIV, which a lot of you do, you will see the little word and there. This is good. That little and word is in the Greek. And what that's doing is it's coupling verse 19 with the verses that precede it. He's saying, and in addition to what I have just said, and that's what that means. The so, in the New American Standard Version, you can just cross that out. And the made, that doesn't need to be there either. That's just added. 
you, you might better translate the text this, and we have the prophetic word more sure. But really the more literal reading is, is this, and this is why. It would be better to read this text, we have the even more sure prophetic word, and I'll tell you why. In Greek, whenever you want to emphasize a phrase, you stick it at the beginning of a verse. Let me just give you a different verse that we're all familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. In, in the English, you usually put you know, the subject and the verb and the direct object. But in that particular verse, you have for by grace. Now, why did they not say you have been saved for by grace through faith and that not of yourselves? Why does he put that up front? Because in the Greek, it's up front. And in the Greek language, it doesn't really matter so much how you position the words. You position the words to make emphasis, and the endings of the word tell you what part of the sentence they are. And in here, more sure is put up front. And so really, the text is talking about, we have, and then you can translate and even, we have the even more sure prophetic word. So the emphasis is on more sure, hence the title of the sermon. So that is what the text is saying. We have a more sure prophetic word. Now, the obvious question to ask in this text is, more sure than what? More sure than what? Well, what is the word of God more sure than? And, like always, if you look in the context, you can find out what that is. So look at the beginning of chapter 1. I'm just going to kind of take you through this text so you can see the flow of the passage. And this is critical whenever you're studying the Bible to find out how the flow of the passage is going and how your verse that you're studying or reading or meditating on or whatever fits into the context. You know, some of you have probably been to Yosemite and, you know, it's a beautiful place and has those huge granite domes. I think more than anywhere else in the place of the earth, it's got, you know, six of them or something. Uh, what if somebody were to blindfold you and take you to Yosemite and then march you up to the face of one of those huge granite domes and then stand you there and take off the blindfold? What would you see? Nothing but granite. And it wouldn't be so great. I mean, you wouldn't know where you were. All you would know is you're just seeing granite. But if you stepped back, you would be able to see more. And as you saw the surrounding and saw the dome within its context, you would see its beauty and its grandeur and be able to see accurately how that dome fits into the setting of Yosemite Park. And that is kind of how it is when you come to the Bible. You look to see how your text fits in to the entire setting of the passage. Now look at verse 2. We're just Peter gives his introduction in 1, and we're going to kind of skim through here. I want you to notice something in this passage. I want you to look for a theme. Look at verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there was a word there, the knowledge of God. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Where? The text says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Look at verse 4. For by these, what's that? The true knowledge of him. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. 
another euphemism for the word of God. So that by them, what? His precious and magnificent promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world by lust. Verse 5. For this very reason also, supplying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And verse 6. And in your knowledge... Self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Go down to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things, what things? The things described by the precious and magnificent promises, the truth, the true knowledge, the knowledge, you will not stumble. Verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. What things? God's word and the need to diligently obey them even though you already know them, what? The things of God's word. And have been established in what? The truth, which means God's word. I considered it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Reminder of what? The truth of God's word. And then verse 15, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. What these things? The truths of God's word. So, you only have the mention of God's word in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, and 13 and 15. Now, that's kind of an obvious theme, isn't it? Then what's interesting, look at our text for today, which is crystal clear. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, the things of God. And then he talks about in verse 20, the prophecy of scripture and the prophecy, again, the word of God. Here's the point. Whenever you're looking at a passage and you see the context moving towards it one direction and going away from it the other direction, you know something. You know something. You're standing on a bridge, concrete bridge. It's over a crystal clear, beautiful river full of wild rainbow trout. I know you probably have to really stretch your imagination to, to think about that. But let's pretend there's one in town. And you look up, and you see the water coming towards the bridge. And then you look downstream, and you see the water going away from the bridge. Now, even though you cannot see underneath the bridge, what do you know? You know what direction the water is flowing, right? Because the preceding context and the following context tell you. Now, this is what's interesting about this passage. Look at verse 16. All of this, remember, we're trying to find out what the Word of God is more sure than in verses 19 through 21, verse 19 specifically. And notice what he says in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now isn't that strange? Here you have 
a text that speaking of the Word of God, starting at the very beginning of the chapter, all the way down to verse 15, and then all of a sudden, this little historical episode thrown in, and then verses 19 through 21, talking about the Word of God again. Now, this is what we know. Because the Word of God is being talked about in verses 1 through 15 and verses 19 through 21, then somehow, in some way, the text before us is speaking about the same thing. You know that. It has to be that way. That's just how it is. Now, the question remains, so why is this historical episode here, and how does it relate to the Word of God? And let's answer that question. Let's go to Matthew 17, where we find out the historical episode that Peter is talking about here. Matthew 17. This is what is often called the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17. This is when James and Peter and John get to go see something that no other person ever before saw. Verse 1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish... I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elisha. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then, of course, in the characteristic manner, when people hear the voice of God, they hit the dirt and were terrified. Now, some believe that Peter mentions this little historical episode in the text because he's trying to establish his apostolic authority. The problem is, he's not. He's speaking of the Word of God and the Word of God's relationship to not being deceived by false teachers. Now, what Peter's doing here is setting up a contrast to more sure in verse 19. He is going back and thinking about all the historical events he's ever experienced. And, you know, imagine the leader of the apostles, what are the kind of things that Peter saw? Oh, Jesus, you know, feed the 5,000 plus women plus children. Jesus, you know, walking on the water. Um, Jesus raising the dead. Jesus healing all manner of disease and sickness. Uh, Jesus um, calming the sea. All of those things Peter experienced with Jesus. But he decides to pick this specific historical event because in Peter's mind this was the greatest thing he had ever experienced. Now think about it. Think about it. Jesus says, "Ah, come on up the mountain here. I want to show you something. It's like, okay, you know, whatever. And just you three come. And so they're going up the mountain. And all of a sudden, Jesus just, I don't know, transfigured, peels back or whatever, and starts radiating like the sun. Now, the sun's kind of hard to look at, isn't it? And not only is he peeled back and they see him just radiant and white like light, but all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. And they start dying. You know, how you doing, Mo? 
Oh, fine. And they start dialoguing there, right there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the apostles are seeing this, and they are just amazed. Now, what's incredible about this is not only do they get to see Jesus in his second coming glory, but they also get to see Moses, the one who represented the law, the first five books of the Bible, and Elijah, the one who represented all the prophets. In other words, Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures as far as the giving of revelation, anywhere in the Bible, he gets to see them talking with Jesus in his second coming glory. That's pretty incredible. And if that wasn't enough, they also heard God himself speak from heaven. And when they heard, of course, they hit the ground and were terrified. They fell to their face. A normal reaction, if you look in the Bible, for those who hear the voice of God. This was, no doubt, the single greatest experience that Peter ever had. And that is exactly why it appears in this text. He speaks of the Word of God, of obeying the Word of God, and then he gives the, the greatest experience he could ever have and says in verse 19, we have the even more sure prophetic word. Now you know what the contrast is. He is contrasting here experience with the Word of God. Only three people have ever experienced anything close to this right here. And that's why he makes this contrast. Remember, he wants them to understand why God's Word is so important. Now, we have all had experiences, but no one's experience, not even Peter, James, and John's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, come close to the authority and reliability of the more sure Word of God. And this is the main point of our text for today that I want to drive home. Many in Christianity today are being deceived into trusting in their personal experiences over and against the Word of God. They want to hear a voice from heaven. They want to see Jesus transfigured before them. They want to experience God. They want to see God sitting on His throne. They want to notice His workings in full manifest glory. And you know, one of the things you can see, our whole society, not even the church, is craving this. I mean, think about TV. Think about all the shows right now on TV that have to do with the supernatural. I mean, shows about angels, shows about demons, shows about vampires, shows about aliens and the like. They're they're just saturated. They are like the main diet of TV today. Why? Because people are craving the supernatural. They they just want to see it. They want to feel it. They just want to see an angel. They they, they long for it. They want to see those things. They want to know those things by experience but not by faith. And this is the danger in all of it. When you start looking at things to be not believed upon, but things that you can see so you can believe them. Remember what the author of Hebrews said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Now, why is this? Why are people all over the world straining and striving for supernatural experiences? Let me just give you two reasons you might want to think about. First, we were created to be eternal beings. We are created by an eternal God to live in His presence and the presence of His holy angels forever. So I think naturally, people want to experience supernatural things. I think it's kind of normal. Another reason is that the Bible says there's a lot going on in heaven. For those who are Christians, you know, there's a lot going on. We know there's angels, we know there's demons, we know God is working, all of these things. And, you know, we'd kind of like to see it. I don't know about you, but I'd like to see it. I mean, I'd like to see the angelic workers going at it, you know, like Elijah's servant in Kings where, you know, he had God open his eyes and he saw all the fiery chariots getting ready for battle. I'd like to see that. Because we are sinful, though, we don't want to live by the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We want to see it now. We want to have an experience. We want to take our five senses developed to experience those things here and now in this world and experience the supernatural. And in one sense, this is fine, and it's normal, and it's right to long to experience those things that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But it is wrong if it bypasses faith. It is wrong if it supplants the word of God. It is wrong if it causes you to do what the word of God says not to do. Without faith, people, it's impossible to please God. Remember, it is what is hoped for and not seen, not what we already have. Romans 8 says, who hopes for what they already have? No, faith is the conviction and the trust that what God says is true, whether we see it or not. Now, what Peter is warning of here in this text is the danger of trusting in these experiences, even these great experiences, over and against the word of God. And I want to show you why, especially today in our age, why this is so dangerous. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is the uh, Olivet Discourse. Jesus here is um, going to speak to um, conclude his sermon in, um, to the multitudes there. And he's talked with them about all the uh, things uh, that they need to do in order to have a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And he's concluding here. And look what he says in verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I find this interesting. These people know who Jesus is. They know he is Lord. They call him Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. Now, notice what the text says. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Now, this is interesting because he contrasts here those who profess to know Jesus with those who obey him. And then he says in verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And notice these three categories of things. Prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Notice, all of those are supernatural works. Prophesying healing, casting out demons, incredible experiences. And notice what Jesus says. And then I will declare to them who? These ones who have been performing supernatural miracles, the ones who have calling him Lord, Lord, and doing things in his name, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why? Because he never knew them. That's scary. 
That is really scary. It is scary to think that Jesus says many will fit into this category. A category of people who are experiencing things, who are seeing that what they think are the supernatural works of God, but <laughs> they aren't. Jesus isn't powering them to sin against him. These are deeds of lawlessness. These people don't get into heaven. And he makes it clear, if you read on, that it is those who hear the word of God and act upon it. They're the ones who have their house built upon the rock. But those who hear the word and do not act upon it, they are the one who experience great judgment. But notice the method here. Experiences over and against the word of God. Turn to Matthew 24, 24. Not only will there be people, Matthew 24, 24. Not only will there be people in the last days who are working hard to deceive other people and to do these false works, but notice these false teachers that Jesus speaks about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 24, do the same thing. Notice what he says. For false Christ's and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Give people incredible experiences. Great signs and wonders. For what purpose? To mislead, if possible, even the elect. How do they do this? They do incredible signs and then people trust them and then they feed them false doctrine. Don't miss the tool of false teachers in this text. Great signs and wonders. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, once false teachers have credibility, then comes the dagger of false teaching. Satan is willing to give them miracles. He's willing to do quote, good things, if he can get you to accept a lie. He will do good things if he can get you to accept a lie. Notice here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. Paul writes, And then that lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to end and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Now let's find out what this activity of Satan is. With all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice here, there is a contrast between great signs, powers, and false wonders and receiving the love of the truth, God's word, so as to be saved. That's how he deceives them. And that is what we need to guard against today as people are striving and looking for an experience. And I want to take you to one last text, and that is Luke 16. Luke 16. I'll just summarize the story. Verses 19 through 31 is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember, Lazarus is the poor guy. He's sitting outside the gates. He's, the rich man has all these means. He's not helping him. The dogs are coming. They're licking um, you know, Lazarus' sores, and he's just all um, you know, gross out there by the gate. Anyways, he finally dies. 
And later on, after he dies, then what happens is the rich man dies too. And they're in two very different places. The rich man is in hell, in agony in the flames. And Lazarus is being comforted in Abraham's bosom. And then they have this little dialogue because the rich man is in such torment that he now realizes how foolish he was and he wants his brothers, who are foolish like he was, to be saved. And so notice what he says in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that is Father Abraham, that you send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The rich man's saying, Hey, hey, listen, can't you just take Lazarus, just raise him from the dead, and send him to my brothers? I mean, ha. Huh. What an evangelist. Some guy raised from the dead. And then they'll see, and then they'll repent, and then they'll be saved, and then they won't come here. But notice what Abraham says. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible. Let them hear them. That was Moses' right. They do not need an experience. They need to submit to the authority of the word of God. Then, notice what the rich man says. You know, he begins to argue with him. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This was his mistaken view of how people are saved. But he said, that is Abraham to him, if they do not Listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Don't miss the point there, people. People do not need an experience. They need to submit to the more sure word of God. That is what Abraham was telling the rich man in Hades. Now, why does Abraham say this? Because he knows the word of God is more sure. And people, we have experiences. I'm not saying don't have an experience. I, I would tell you right now that Christianity, by definition, is an experiential relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to know by experience the peace of God which surpasses understanding. It is to receive the witness of the Spirit in your heart that God's Word is true. It is to see God transform you from one glory to the next. But don't ever, ever take an experience that contradicts the Word of God and do that instead of what the Word of God says. Every experience must be hammered out on the anvil of the Word of God, like the Bereans who searched everything Paul said to see whether those things be so. And that's what we need to make sure. Why? Because in these last days, Satan's primary modus operandi of deception is experiences. And that's what the Word of God clearly teaches. So what have we learned today? First and foremost, the Bible is more sure than any experience you could ever have. Second, that in order to avoid being deceived by false teachers, we must have God's truth, His precious and magnificent promises, His knowledge, His word embedded in our hearts. 
And third, we learn that we must never trust in experiences over and against the Word of God. Why? Because Satan uses experiences to deceive people. Those experiences, however good they may be, are not to be relied or trusted upon if they contradict the Scriptures. In closing, I want to read you one last text. Turn to Revelation 19.20. Next week, we will see what to do with the prophetic word and why the prophetic word is more sure. In Revelation 19.20, here is the culmination of the age. Satan is being banished. Jesus' kingdom is going to be established the false Christ, the Antichrist, and his prophet are being dealt with. And in Revelation 19.20, we say, we read, as John says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Notice what the text says. Deceived those by performing signs in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, thanking you that your word is more sure. Father, we thank you that we can know Jesus Christ that we can have a personal relationship with you, that we can experience your truth, that we can experience the peace of God which passes all understanding, that we can have your joy and your heart. But Father, may we be careful to test all of our experiences against the touchstone of your word. Father, we know we need to do this, that we might maintain purity and not be led astray so that, Father, we will not dishonor you. And, Father, if there is anyone here today who is searching their hearts and thinks, I just don't know if I know Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you right now in their own heart, they would surrender their sin, that they would repent of their way, and, Father, they would submit wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. Father, we need you, and we trust in you, and we thank you for your word. As the psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We thank you for that and for this morning. Amen.